Amen and amen. Oh, the Lord is good. It's always refreshing to the believer to hear stories and be reminded of what he's done, uh, what he's, the lengths he's gone to to save sinners like us and to bring people into his family. And so, again, it is right for us to have joy and to celebrate the grace and mercy of God, even specifically to these brothers and sisters that we've heard from even today. So praise God again, and let me ask him uh, for help as we pray and go to his word. So pray with me. Father, we come to you again through the name of Christ our Lord and by the power of the Holy Spirit. We come praising you because you're a good God who saves sinners like us. We pray asking, would you give us a grace and a humility and a joy? Would you remind us indeed that joy is coming in the morning? That we have an eternal joy that transcends earthly circumstances. That we have brothers and sisters from every tribe, tongue, and nation whom the gospel has gone forth and they've repented and believed and have life in your name. There's now a new people, a people on your mission to proclaim the good news of the gospel to a lost and dying world. Help us be faithful. Help us be joyful. Even do that now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We live in a culture and a day where it is very popular for people to say that they believe people are basically good. That people are basically good. That's a common belief in our time and day. However, there's ample evidence that no matter how much people say that, they don't actually believe it. Let me just, give, let me just illustrate very simply. Sometimes people might even make the argument, the assertion that people are basically good, and they might do so from a social media account that they had to put in a private password to log into. And they did that from a computer that they also had to put in a private password to log into. And that computer is connected to a router in their house that, you guessed it, they had to put in a private password to log into. And that router is behind a door that not only locks, but has a deadbolt to make sure a simple burglary can't take place. And not only is there a deadbolt and a lock, there's a camera on the doorbell filming people to make sure if somebody tries to break in, you can see it happening. And there's cameras outside to try to protect you as well. And on that security system, it's automatically connected to authorities so that if someone breaks in, it will automatically call them. And if they break in and happen to be hold you hostage, you have to set up this special password with them to know whether or not you're held hostage. And then when you walk out of those doors, you go unlock your car door to get in your car. And you drive to work. You may stop by for a biscuit on the way to work and you pull into parking lots where it's not unusual to see a Brinks truck or some kind of armored truck with an armored security guard going inside to get the cash to bring it back into the armored security guard uh, truck in order to take it to the bank where it's safe and secure. And in fact, if we believe people were basically good, we would see no need for all of this security. That's how I know people don't actually believe that people are basically good. We know we need all this security because people will steal from you. <laughs> You basically believe that. Look at all your passwords and locks. <laughs> and this is not only true of material valuables. If, if people were basically good, there'd be no need for professors and teachers to check papers for plagiarism. There'd be no laws and rules, uh, strict rules to protect against tax evasion. No need for copyright laws or patents to credit inventors. No need for specific expense accounts at work to make sure you're not cheating with the money at work. No need for witnesses in court. So people may say that people are basically good, 
But all, they all the steps they take to keep their money, their information, and their selves safe say otherwise. And in, really, we need no explanation for why the Ten Commandments would include the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. We get it. Theft is common because thieves are common. We don't think people are basically good. We think if we turn, and we don't have a million login passwords, we'll get something stolen from us. That's what we think about people actually. Thieves are common because we live in a fallen world where people are not basically good, but are obviously sinful. There's even some weeks when you gather on Sunday morning to preach on the Eighth Commandment, and you find out the keyboard was stolen during the week. So literally, the band called me this morning like, did you let somebody borrow the keyboard? That's not our normal keyboard. <laughs> no, I didn't. So either it's an incredible prank or someone stole our keyboard this week. On the week in God's providence, I'll be preaching on do not steal. Now, listen, if you're here and you stole it, <laughs> buckle up. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but the main point this morning, and none of that is like a preacher story. That's all really true. <laughs> that really happened. But the main point this morning as we exposit and think about this eighth commandment, do not take what belongs to someone else. Instead, receive what God gives in Christ and share it with others. Do not take what belongs to someone else. Instead, receive what God gives in Christ and share it with others. So in, in more simple terms, don't take, but receive and share. Feels a little bit like a sermon for toddlers. <laughs> don't take, receive and share. Maybe, maybe humanity is not quite as mature as we think. Maybe we need the truth of God's word to convict us afresh. Do not take what belongs to someone else. Instead, receive what God gives in Christ and share. Those three exhortations will shape our message for this morning. First, do not take what belongs to someone else. The Eighth Commandment is not very complex to explain. It simply forbids you from taking something that belongs to someone else. This is an obvious violation of neighbor love. It's not loving to someone to take something that belongs to them. So I want to submit to you at least just a minimum of seven ways that we can break this command. I think there are more. But for the sake of time and then just simplicity, I want to point out seven ways I think we break this commandment by taking that which belongs to others. Some which are very, very obvious and evident to us, maybe others that may catch you off guard. First, stealing personal property. Stealing personal property, like a keyboard from a church. <laughs> That's a good illustration, live illustration for this morning. Stealing personal property. Many of you have been entertained by movies about this kind of thing, like the Ocean's Eleven series. Or perhaps the Italian job. Or maybe you've tuned in recently. Rachel and I found a, a new uh, series on the Discovery Channel called History's Greatest Heist with Pierce Brosnan. So th this is pretty simple. This is simply taking some material belonging of someone else for yourself without permission. Now, I don't assume necessarily that there are people here who've committed a famous diamond heist like the first episode of that show. But maybe, maybe some of you took candy from a store as a child. Perhaps as a rebellious teen, you stole some electronic device from a store or a friend or a house. Perhaps you kept something someone let you borrow with no intention of giving it back. Maybe again in some rebellious days, those long in the past or those more recent, again, you broke in somewhere and took something of great value. These are obvious violations of the Eighth Commandment. Those, these are not the only kind of violations the Eighth Commandment's talking about. Also, secondly, a violation of the Eighth Commandment is, is using deceitful actions to take what rightfully belongs to someone else. So I'm thinking like Jacob stealing Esau's birthright by deceiving their father. So there's a deception, a, a deceit active such that you can get something that belongs to someone else. So maybe something like insurance fraud. I remember as a child, 
a distant family member uh, asked my dad to do something. And I heard my dad processing what this distant family member is asking him to do. Basically, he said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pretend like something he had that was very valuable got stolen. I want to bring it to your house and put it out in your building and then report it on my insurance so I can get the money and then I'll come back and get it. My dad obviously was not interested in this, uh, but this is a, a similar kind of thing, to be deceitful and to use something like that in order to gain something that does not belong to you. Again, like insurance fraud. Or there's a way to, to be deceitful with your taxes by claiming things you shouldn't claim on your taxes, by not reporting income you ought to report. These are uh, evidences of being deceitful and breaking, violating the Eighth Commandment. Even in today's world, particularly for the students, I would just warn you, there's a new temptation for you that has just hit the screen. You could use AI technology and, and do your work that way and report it as if that was your own work. That's a way of de a deceiving and stealing. These are examples, again, of breaking the Eighth Commandment. A third clear example, particularly in the Old Testament, emphasized this, is what uh, is referred to as man-stealing. Man-stealing. So Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, we read, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10, when he's listing the second table of the law, the neighbor kind of commands about neighbor love, he says this, Understanding this, the law is not laid down for the just, but the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, there's the fifth and sixth commandment, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, there's the seventh commandment, enslavers, now there's our Eighth Commandment. Liars, perjurers, again, a way of violating both the Eighth and Ninth Commandment and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. And so even in history, chattel slavery was an obvious and especially evil violation of the Eighth Commandment. So even the slavery that's in the Scriptures is not the kind of slavery uh, that, that we know about in our own history. This was a clear man-stealing. This was a violation of the clear teaching of Scripture. Today, sex trafficking would be this kind of especially evil and obvious violation of the Eighth Commandment. Fourthly, a way to break or violate the Eighth Commandment is using power, influence, or expertise to deceive and ma manipulate for personal gain. So using power, influence, or expertise to deceive and manipulate for personal gain. James chapter 5 verse 4, James uh, talks about this. He says, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You fatten your hearts in a day of slaughter. So unjustly using power, influence, or expertise to deceive and gain financial benefit from that abuse that we see in James. So again, in our context, unfair wages or overworking without just pay. Abusive child labor. Or I can give you an illustration, an example that we've experienced. A widow in our church. <clears throat> had someone come out to look at a problem at her house and then gave this exorbitant quote for all kinds of work she did not need done. So one of our elders got involved, kind of got the quote, found out the information, sent out someone else, and it was like a quarter of the cost was actually needed. So this is the kind of thing that's unjust treatment that would manipulate and try to use those who are in a vulnerable position and convince them they need to spend money they don't spend in order to benefit. This is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Fifthly, we could say that stealing what we call intellectual property is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. So maybe again, what's funny is I don't watch very many movies. I get made fun of for this regularly, but I'm quoting and referencing multiple movies today as if I'm a movie buff. I'm not. And you can probably tell by the movies I'm quoting are like 20 years old. But anyway, uh, maybe you've seen the movie Inception. 
Inception illustrates this where the main character, Leonardo DiCaprio, his character leads a criminal team to infiltrate people's minds to steal and even implant ideas. I can give also, again, a personal story of this one that's a little bit humorous, but I do think a, a violation, a bit of a problem biblically. Uh, one time I had a, a friend who was a musician, and he was an up-and-coming musician. I had a little bit of notoriety and fame, and I had a concept of an, a song I was wanting him to do for me for a ministry event. And so I pitched it to him. I gave him his vision. I kind of pitched, here's what I'm thinking, kind of is a double entendre, these multiple themes coming together. And like, what do you think about it? And he was like, man, I, like, I feel really inspired by that. I think it's really good. Like, I can't do what you want me to do. Sorry, I can't do the event. And I can't, I can't do a song for that. A few months later, an artist on his label dropped an album with the title of that name that I had given to him. So no, no, no reference, no quote, no copyright. So maybe it's not breaking the eighth commandment. I definitely saw no money from it. I can promise you that. But again, stealing intellectual property, taking someone's ideas and pretending like it actually belongs to you or originated with you. Maybe another example of this that hits a little closer to home is glancing over at someone else's exam or quiz when you're taking an exam or a quiz, stealing their information and their hard work for your test. Or plagiarism, that you write a paper, you turn in a paper and you take work from someone else and you use it verbatim as if it was your own work deceiving and stealing their property to get credit for yourself. I even know pastors who've been guilty of plagiarism in sermons. And I'm not talking about, listen, everything I teach to you, I learned from someone else, either in the scriptures, by the spirit, in study, or reading commentaries and books. And so I'm influenced, and everything I say has been, like, has in, been taught to me from someone else. Nothing's new under the sun. I'm not talking about referencing and being influenced and taught by someone else. What I'm saying is verbatim using somebody's words as if they're your own. And I know stories of pastors who literally stood in a pulpit and read a manuscript that someone else wrote and even used personal illustrations as if it was their own personal stories. This is a violation of the Eighth Commandment. Again, maybe one that hits even closer to home for most of us. A way to violate the Eighth Commandment would be idleness or laziness at work. Idleness or laziness at work. There are plenty of warnings in the book of Proverbs about the danger of idleness and how it leads to poverty. For example, we read Proverbs 6, verse 10. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an, un, like an armed man. Or Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. Now you might wonder, well, how is idleness a violation of the Eighth Commandment? Well, because you're not only dishonoring God by not doing the work he's called you to do, but also you're stealing the benefits of society around you without contributing to it. So you're saying, I will take the benefits from everyone else's work, but I won't contribute to all the work of those around me. Paul warns of this very clearly in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 10. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And under verse 10, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. He's stealing off of the work of others. And then lastly, number seven, and this is the most convicting personally and even, I think, spreads the deepest in our hearts. The last way you can break the eighth commandment is by robbing God, by stealing from God himself. Thinking ultimately you're an owner of anything that you have rather than a steward. Malachi 3, 8 through 10, God actually warns his people about this very explicitly. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. 
You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need, no more need. So again, now the New Testament, we'll talk more about this in just a moment. I don't believe teaches a tithe, and so we'll talk about the difference of that as New Covenant Christians. But clearly there's a way to rob God of that which belongs to him. And in this context, he had called for this tithe, and Israel was failing to give them that which, or give to God what they had pledged to give to God. And so I'll just ask you this morning, do you live for money and stuff such that you do not give generously and sacrificially to the advance of the gospel and the relief of the poor? You may very well be guilty of robbing God. As I've shared with you guys many a times in my own personal story, I remember my freshman year of college, being at a New Year's conference with Campus Outreach and hearing the gospel preached, and as the man talked about the glory of God, I realized and I was convicted down to my core that we're supposed to live for the glory of God. And I was about to transfer to play football because I missed football and had an injury and football been taken away from me. And in that moment, I was convicted to my core. The game of football is not what I miss. What I miss is a stadium full of people cheering for me. I miss glory, glory that belongs to God. I'm a glory thief. I've tried to rob glory from God. That is evil. I'm a thief in the worst way. So maybe you live for the approval of man. It could be that you're robbing God of his glory. Maybe you're full of pride. It could be that you're robbing God of his glory. Maybe you're constantly living, trying to get control over everything in your life. You might be a sovereignty thief trying to be in control, stealing control from God. Maybe you're living in sexual sin, trying to steal pleasure that God says belongs to one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage forever. Stealing of any kind is an assault on the sovereignty and goodness of God. When you steal by these measures or plenty of others that I haven't addressed, you declare that God has not been good enough to you, that he does not know what is best for you, or, or, and or that he's powerless to give you what you need. You declare that you know better than him. And you're sinning against other people by attacking his sovereignty, his goodness, and his wisdom, and what he's given to them. You're saying, no, that's for me. So you're attacking and sinning against God and against man. There's no reason that Martin Luther, the reformer, says, if we look at mankind in all of his conditions, it is nothing but a vast, wide stable full of great thieves. So again, first exhortation, do not take what belongs to someone else. Second exhortation, receive what he gives. Surely I hope at this moment, as you've thought about what's going on in your heart and the categories of your life, there might be silly little things you've stolen, or now you might realize there's more serious things and that you've even uh, attempted to rob God himself. And as we've done through all of these commandments, as we've studied through the Ten Commandments, we've realized what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. None of us can get through these Ten Commandments and feel clear and clean. We're all guilty and sinful. Today, we've learned even that we're all guilty of breaking the Eighth Commandment, even if not ways that would land us on a TV show with Pierce Brosnan. We all stand guilty compared to God and the righteous requirement of his law, though. So it's easy to look at other sinners and think, well, I haven't stolen things like they have. But then God is looking like, yeah, but you tried to rob me. Like, stop comparing yourself to God and compare yourself to man. And suddenly we realize, while Paul says none is righteous, no, not one. So what do we do? Is there forgiveness to be found, hope to be found for violators of the eighth commandment and indeed all of God's commands? Do you remember who the Lord Jesus was crucified between? Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. 
Two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. Jesus, the very Son of God, was crucified between two thieves. Two obvious, guilty breakers of the Eighth Commandment. And these two thieves illustrate the options, the two options you have with the guilt of your commandment breaking. Let's look closer at Luke's account. Luke chapter 23, verse 39. One of the criminals, again, a thief, who were hanged railed at him saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So one criminal, get this, hanging on the cross, bleeding, suffering, dying, the Son of God in between. He looks at the Son of God and says, If you are who you say you are, do something and prove yourself and relieve all the suffering we're going through. Notice this is not a repentant and humble posture. So he's got a little bit of a posture. He's like, no, I ain't willing to trust that you're the Christ, the Son of God, unless you get me down from this suffering. Then maybe I'll think about believing in you. Do something for me and for us according to my will. Then I'll decide what I think about you. See, friends, enemies of Christ might be outright rejectors of Christ. Or they might be a little more agnostic with it. Saying, look, I'm not saying he's not God. But I'm not really willing to acknowledge him until there's immediate, observable, obvious, personal benefit to me according to my will. But friends, I would just say to you, if you only submit to God, if God submits to you, then you're being your own God. That's like you're, you're having a God that submits to you. You are God. So if your submission is based on his submission to you, you've got the whole thing out of order. Even phony Christianity has the same posture. Phony Christianity, kind of prosperity gospel Christianity is like, Jesus, if you will alleviate me having to carry a cross, relieve my suffering, give me only blessing, well, then I'll follow you as Messiah. But did Christ not say, take up your cross, die daily and follow me? So phony Christianity is like, no, no, get my suffering away from me, then I will follow you. If you'll bless me with prosperity and riches without persecution or rigor, then you can be king. Friends, an enemy of God is willing to be blessed by God. They just refuse to bow to God. Any enemy of God is willing to be blessed by him. But they don't want to bow to him. But notice the other thief on the cross. We continue reading verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God? Since you're under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly for receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. Now notice this thief makes a very simple confession, but he's confessing two very profound realities. Simple confession of very profound truths. Truth number one, personal guilt. He acknowledges with the other thief, we're guilty. We're suffering justice for that which we actually deserve because we are thieves, we are criminals, we've broken the Eighth Commandment. We deserve to suffer and die. We are guilty. We're getting the just punishment we deserve. That's his first observation. But notice his second one. Not only personal guilt, he highlights Jesus' innocence. He says, he's done nothing wrong. He doesn't deserve this punishment. You and I do. We're guilty. He's not guilty. We're thieves. He's not a thief. We're getting what we deserve. He doesn't deserve this. What should one do when you're convicted that you are guilty and that Christ is innocent and yet he suffers the punishment you justly deserve? Like this thief, you cast yourself on the mercy of Christ. He continues, look at verse 42. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
So in this moment, he's like, look, I don't know how this is going to shake out. All I know is on the other side of this, you're reigning and ruling in your kingdom. And in that kingdom, will you remember me? In that kingdom where you're the king? Again, I don't think he has any idea what he's actually confessing in detail. I don't know that this thief understands death, burial, and resurrection. I don't know that he understands Christ is going to suffer and die in the place of sinners and then on the third day get up. But he clearly understands, I'm guilty, you're innocent, you're the king, and on the other side of this you're reigning. Will you remember me in that reign? He knows enough gospel to, to cast himself at the mercy of Christ. And he says, remember me. And how does Christ respond to guilty sinners who have broken the eighth and indeed any and all commandments? who cast themselves at his mercy, seeing their guilt, seeing his innocence. Luke 23, 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Christ our Lord can transform and save thieves even in the last hour. Now, it's, today is the day of salvation, the apostle Paul says, so you ought not wait until the last hour. But even in the last hour, our God's grace is sufficient to save sinners. He died for thieves and sinners of all types. He died in between two thieves. One thief wanted the blessing of Christ without bowing to him as Messiah and King. And unless there's a private interaction he had that's not recorded in Scripture, he got exactly what he wanted, eternity without Christ. The other thief said, would you remember me? Paradise forever with our great God and his people, his blood-bought people. Consider, think about this thief on the cross. I'm going to use a little help from Pastor Alistair Begg with probably my favorite preaching moment ever. I'm going to read it to you in quote, but I would even encourage our community groups as you gather tonight or throughout this week to maybe watch this little clip together. We'll send out the link. But Alistair Begg thinks about this thief, and I want to read to you in detail from him. Without the preaching of the cross, without preaching the cross to ourselves all day and every day, we will be very, very quickly revert to faith plus works as the ground of our salvation. So that to go to the old Fort Lauderdale question, if you were to die tonight and you were getting entry into heaven, what would you say? If you answer that, and if I answer it, in the first person, we've immediately gone wrong. Because I, because I believe, because I have faith, because I am this, because I am continuing loved ones, the only proper answer is in the third person. Because he, because he. Think about the thief on the cross. What an immense, I can't wait to find that fellow one day and ask him, how'd that shake out for you? You were cussing the guy out with your friend. You'd never been in a Bible study. You never got baptized. You didn't know a thing about church membership. And yet, and yet you made it. You made it. How did you make it? He said, that's what the angel must have said. You know, like, what are you doing here? Well, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, because I don't know. Well, you know, excuse me, let me get my supervisor. They go get the supervisor angel. So we've just a few questions for you. First of all, are you clear on the doctrine of justification by faith? The guy says, I've never heard of it in my life. (laughs) And what about, let's just go to the doctrine of Scripture immediately. The guy's just staring. And eventually, in frustration, he says, on what basis are you here? And he said, and the man on the middle cross said I could come. The man on the middle cross said I could come. And this is the testimony of every true follower of Christ. Think about Matthew, the tax collector. He was a thief. He robbed from his own people. He benefited financially from his own people. Christ said, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And his testimony, when he gets there, is going to be the man on the middle cross said, I could come. Think about Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. A tax collector. 
sees Christ, got to climb up. I want to see Christ. I got to get to where I can see him. Meets Christ, immediately says, I'll repay everyone fourfold who I stole from, and I'll give half of all that I have to the poor. Follows Christ. What's his testimony? The man on the middle cross said I could come. Christ saves sinners. That's, he says literally in, in the account of Zacchaeus in chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 10, I came to seek and save the lost. Friend, you got to admit I'm lost. <laughs> I'm guilty. He's innocent. He died on the cross. My only hope is if he says, I can come. That's what every baptized person today is trusting in on that great day. The man on the middle cross said, I can come. Non-Christian friend, one day you will die and face judgment. You will account for your sins. That day really is coming. And on that day, you may think these were little sins. Your judgment does not matter. His judgment matters. And he says that sinners must die. So you have two options. You can be like either of these two thieves. I'll come if you do what I want you me to do, and you'll be separated from God forever. Or you can say, would you remember me in your kingdom? I am guilty. I am sinful. I have no hope on my own. I have Christ, and I have Christ alone. I have the man on the middle cross, and if he said I can come, I'm in. If he didn't, I have no hope. Non-Christian friend, would you repent and believe and cast yourself on the mercy and grace of Christ? He has great mercy, and he can save a sinner like you, a sinner like Matthew, a sinner like Zacchaeus, a, a sinner like the thief on the cross, a sinner like me, a sinner like all here who he has saved. The only thing that matters for the rest of your life, nothing matters like knowing if the man on the middle cross says you can come. So again, first exhortation, do not take what belongs to you. Receive what he gives. Salvation in Christ. But then third exhortation, and share it. <laughs> so don't take what's not yours. Receive what he gives and then share it. Thirdly, share what he gives. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Our God does not change. He is generous. He gives freely of his abundant grace and mercy in Christ. He gives good gifts according to his wisdom, according to his goodness, and according to his sovereignty. The greatest gift, is, as we've seen, is salvation in the gospel. But that's not the only gift. It's important if we understand the Eighth Commandment correctly that I just want to just point out a clear implication of the Eighth Commandment. Personal property is legitimate and is a blessing of God. So he's assuming, no, stuff belongs to other people and you should not take it. Which is an affirmation that to have personal property is something that God means for people to have. That he's a good God who gives good gifts. We'll see it when we study uh, the chapters after this that talk about protecting, uh, protecting land and crops and farm and boundary lines. He said, no, no, no. I, I demonstrate and I give forth my goodness in abundance. I give things to people for them to steward. We're made in the image of God to reign and rule underneath his reign and rule, including over things he gives to us and means for us to have. It's not wrong to have private personal property. In fact, it's a good gift of God. Having said that, we have to understand ultimately we're not owners of anything. We are stewards. So he gives things to us to steward. He gives us personal property to steward. He gives us talents and treasures to steward and time to steward. We're stewards underneath the judge who would tell us if we use what he's given to us for his name and purposes. As I want you to know this morning, you have what you have according to the sovereign goodness of God. It is also true that you do not have what you do not have according to the sovereign goodness of God. You're called to steward what you have, not what you don't have. 
He's not going to hold you accountable to steward that which he has not given to you. He's going to hold you accountable to steward what he has given to you. As a church, he's given us talents and time and treasures to steward. We will be held accountable for what we steward as a church. And we steward what we have, what we have received by sharing it with others. I love what Jerry Bridges says in, the, in a classic book, The Disciplines of Grace. And if you're a new Christian or an old Christian, if you've never read The Disciplines of Grace, I would commend it to you. They're a wonderful book, super rich and encouraging in your discipleship and how to think about the disciplines. But Jerry Bridges in The Disciplines of Grace said there are three attitudes we can have towards money and possession. Number one, what's yours is mine, I will take it. Number two, what's mine is mine, I will keep it. Number three, what's mine is God's, I will share it. So again, the first one, clear violation of the Eighth Commandment. What's mine is, or what's yours is mine, I'll take it. Stealing. The second, what's mine is mine, I'll keep it, is a hoarding, a selfishness, I will live for me. Also a violation of the Eighth Commandment, also a rebellion against God. But the Christian says what's mine is God's. I'm a steward, I will share it. So I want to spend the rest of our time talking about how do we do this? How do we share what God has given to us practically and faithfully? How do we give and share out of what he gives to us? How can we be good stewards? Well, number one, as followers of Christ, we share what he gives to us by working hard and uprightly. By working hard and uprightly. Paul modeled this when he exhorted the elders in uh, Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 34. Paul said, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said himself, it is more blessed to give than receive. So as followers of Christ, we are those who do not cut corners as employees, nor manage unjustly if we are employers. Like we, we are upright. We work hard and we work uprightly. Paul addresses this in the household codes in Ephesians and in Colossians. That as Christians, we do everything unto the Lord. We're working unto the Lord. We're stewarding to the Lord. If we're reporting to our employers, we do it as unto the Lord. If we are a boss managing people, we do it as unto the Lord. Because we have one master. He owns everything. We're merely stewards. So we read Colossians 3, verse 22. Bond servants, obeying everything, those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of our service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So in your work on the clock, work hard. And work justly or uprightly. And it's a hard week to talk about this. Like, don't steal time from your company by watching March Madness when you're supposed to be working. Ugh, that hurts. <laughs> but if you're supposed to be working for a company and you're sending personal emails or playing video games or looking on social media or walking Mar watching March Madness, you're stealing from your company. You're breaking the Eighth Commandment. Because you're supposed to be contributing to that company. You're supposed to be bringing something to the table. and Instead, you're taking from the table. Your company's not paying you to do that. Now, some of you, you're not on the clock and off the clock and it's complex. Hey, seek wisdom and guidance. Even talk to your employers and figure that out. Figure out if you're okay or not. I'm not trying to bind anyone's conscience if you're not doing anything wrong. I am saying when you're working, you should work as unto the Lord. And that you'll be held accountable for that. So do not steal from God by not stewarding the opportunity to work that he's given to you. If you're a boss, you should be fair and generous boss. Give fair pay and fair time off. Create a work environment for your employees to flourish in. Everyone 
Reward hard and, and, and just work and be generous. So when you tip at a restaurant, you should be generous if the waiter or waitress has done a good job. When, when, you, when you pay someone to do work at your house, they do a good job, pay them extra. And it's like, why would I do that? Because the tomb is empty. You're a Christian. Like you've received grace from Christ that transformed. Like we're different. We're built different. <laughs> and so we live differently. And so we love and we see hard work. We encourage it. We reward it. We're just. We're upright in our dealings. We are generous. We work hard and we are upright. I'd also say, again, don't cut corners or be shady with your taxes, your time, your talents, your treasure. You're not getting away with anything. God knows all of it. Be faithful to him. And also just a quick note about gambling. Brothers and sisters, I've watched people utterly ruin their lives and the lives of their loved ones because of gambling. And gambling, and just real quickly, I mean, it violates the work principles of Scripture, that you work hard and earn a living, and that's pleasing to God. It, it necessitates foolish risk rather than wise stewardship. It violates neighbor love because when you win or if you win, it's at the expense of someone who lost, someone who lost a lot. I have a family member who committed suicide because of gambling debt. There are victims when you gamble and win. Paul Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So share. How do we share what we receive? By working hard and uprightly. Secondly, by living with gracious generosity. So we share by working hard and uprightly just as Christians. But then secondly, by living with gracious generosity. Zacchaeus, again, was a beautiful illustration of this, of what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.28. Let the thief no longer steal. You've been saved now. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Do you see what Paul says? Gospel came and got you when you were a thief, saved you. Don't steal anymore. Instead, work really hard so that you have extra to give. So be generous, and especially to the wealthy. And listen, if you're in America and you have a decent job, you are wealthy compared to most of the world. 1 Timothy 6, 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Again, personal property. He's given you to enjoy. That to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Christians should be the most generous to the poor and suffering in this world. When opportunities come to you, be ready to give. And give generously. Now listen, this doesn't mean I'm saying every single person that comes and asks you for money on the street, give to them. Sometimes, and there's, there's complexity, you've got to pray for wisdom and discernment and learn what's going on in your city and, and what's being provided for the homeless and the poor. There's complexity to it because sometimes that person asking for money is actually get, guilty of being idle or even worse, being a hustler. And they're abusing the system and to give to them actually would not help them nor the entire society. It actually would hurt them and the rest of society. So again, you need wisdom. I'm not saying give every time somebody asks to give per se. When a poor person asks give, the Lord Jesus says that. Make sure they're a poor person. <laughs> so again, that's the complexity of life in a broken world. Make sure they're poor according to what Christ means by poor. But what I am saying is the Bible says Christians ought to be uniquely generous, graciously generous. So consider, you have budgets? Like you, 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 a lot of you set aside money every month, I hope, for rent or mortgage. I hope you pay that thing monthly. Some of you set aside you know, money for your other bills and budget for other bills. Budget maybe for clothes. Maybe you have a savings budget. Maybe there's other. Like, why don't you budget for gracious generosity? Why don't you set aside, Lord, I just want to give $100 a month in my budget so that when somebody, I see somebody in need, I'm ready and the budget's there and I'm ready to give. This is how Christians should live. 
We're just graciously generous because God has been generous with us. We want to be generous, so we think about it. If the month goes by and you're like, I didn't spend my money, go to the missions tab on our website. Look at our partners, ministry partners in this city and around the world. Give to one of them or give to our benevolence budget so that as we see needs in our church. But there's plenty of needs around the world. Give, be generous, share by working hard and uprightly, by, by living with gracious generosity. And lastly, by prioritizing gospel generosity. So I think Christians should be the most generous to the poor. But friends, we must prioritize gospel generosity. We receive the greatest treasure in the world in the gospel of Christ. So we talked about in our second point. As a church, as Christians, we're the only people on the planet prioritizing getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. Nobody else in the world is thinking about that except for those who've been saved by God in Christ. We're the only ones saying, how do we get the good news to every tribe, tongue, and nation? How do we meet the needs of the poor in the name of Christ? We're the only followers of Christ, only churches of Christ are doing that. Therefore, we must prioritize gospel generosity. We've covenanted as a church to do this together. That's why even in our church budget, we try, we're trying our best to get right at 20% at least is going out just to mission work, to gospel work. We got to steward the work God has here. We got buildings. We got people. Like we, we have bills to pay. We got to be good stewards. But man, we want to be super gracious to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, again, I don't think the New Testament teaches the tithe. That is 10%. Instead, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, I don't have time to go there in the verses. Uh, they're long. But what we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, basically is that Christians give until it hurts, and they're super happy about it. The tomb's empty. The throne's occupied. He's saving sinners. They're getting baptized, repenting, and believing. They're going to go to glory. Thieves are still getting saved in the ninth hour. We see that going on, and we're like, we want people to know Christ, so we give a ton of money, and we're super happy about it. The pastor doesn't have to do some fundraising thing and twist our arms and talk us in. Like, we don't have to do that because we're Christians. Like, we want to give. We want to alleviate the suffering of the poor. We want the gospel to go to the ends of the earth because we love God. And so we partner with gospel preaching churches and we send missionaries and we send those who have an opportunity to go. Right now, we have a sister in the Middle East somewhere we can't even tell you where she is proclaiming gospel. Why? Because the tomb's empty. <laughs> like, and so we're gonna, like, the, every Christian ought to have things you want to do in your life you can't afford to do because you're giving too much money away. That's just normal Christianity. That's not superstar Christianity. That's normal Christianity. Unfortunately, too many churches and too many Christians are walking around in America being unfaithful Christians. Our issue is not they're not being superstar Christians. They're being unfaithful, period. Doesn't mean they're not saved. Just means they're not living the way we ought to live when it comes to finances. We ought to give. Give until it hurts. We ought to be really, really happy about it when we see people come to faith. Now, I think it's generally wise. So here's just a pastoral word of wisdom. This is not Bible. This is a pastoral encouragement and wisdom. I think it's generally wise, again, we're the wealthiest people who have ever walked the planet, to start with 10%. So what the Darst do personally is we give 10% to our local church. That's our primary space and covenant family of missions to get gospel, to declare good news, to display good days. We're going to do that here. And then on top of that, we give to other people and to the poor on top of that 10% to the church. Now, not everybody, you don't have to do that. I'm just saying it's a good place to start, I think, generally. Some of you need to give a whole lot more than that. Some of you less, like because of circumstances and what's going on in your life. I, but I think you ought to think about, God, what should I be giving? How should I be getting the God? Am I being generous, like graciously generous with my time? Am I prioritizing the gospel in how I spend my money? I think those are generally wise things. One pastoral warning I would have, and I observe this with, with, particularly with younger uh, families, younger couples, 
It's very tempting to believe that one day when you make more money, you'll give more money. I'm just telling you, we watch it. It doesn't happen that way. You are as generous today as you will be tomorrow. So if you give a certain percentage today, you'll do that tomorrow. If not, you'll just keep giving what you normally give. And if you keep making more money and you'll keep it where it's at, you actually get less and less and less generous. I don't think that's how sanctification works. I think the gospel makes us more generous, not less. And so I think you should think deeply about, wait a minute, as the Lord adds, again, you've got to steward. You've got to think about retirement. You've got to think about kids and college and future. And you've got to think, you've got to steward all those things. But plan to give or you're not going to give the way you ought to give. J.C. Ryle has a word for us even thinking about tomorrow. He says, tomorrow's the devil's day, but today's God's. Satan does not care how spiritual your intentions are or how holy your resolutions, if only they are determined to be done tomorrow. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till the promotion. (laughs) Seek to be a wise and generous steward of what God has given you today. Seek to live out this reality today and trust him you'll be faithful even on tomorrow. Even at King's Cross, I want you to know your, your, your giving is going to great gospel works. So a team of us got to go to Puerto Rico. What God is doing down there is incredible. The church planting movement, the ministry they got going on, we were able to say, hey, tell us whatever we can do to serve you. They led and ran the thing and they're killing it. They needed us zero. But man, they used us and put us to work and it was a joy to be there. And we're able to partner. So we've got works going on in India. We've got works, again, going on in the Middle East. We've got Latin America. The stuff that's going on through Pillar Network in Latin America is mind Like, there's all kinds of gospel work going on all over the world because of just, and we're getting to contribute and be a part of it. And so we love that. Why? Because the tomb's empty, throne's occupied, and Christ is going to return. And we're able to be a part of what he's doing in the world. We ought to be a generous people. We ought to share from the overflow of what we've been given in Christ. So in conclusion... Do not take that which God has not given to you. Instead, receive what he's given and steward it by working hard and fair, by living with gracious generosity to those in need, and by prioritizing gospel generosity in your local church and to the ends of the earth. Let's close in prayer.